Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast this is your almost weekly rhetorical assault actually it's it's weekly Ugh. on the on the news cycle of people that make it and occasionally ourselves i'm camille foster i do completely indispensable things at a place called Freethink, and i am delighted to be here today this is an unusual recording for us yeah because it is early in the day i mean mm-hmm. it's like two i'm drinking coffee, or something yeah. like that i am joined by michael moynihan yeah, just me. Wonderful. It's good to see you at Vice yeah. News. Well, we're not alone. but Well, we're not. I mean, it's, it's true that, that we have two guests today because yes. we have two people that didn't show up. Well, but, Matt Welch is yeah. someplace on the West Coast. Uh, <laughs> I think he was working before and now he might just be vacationing yeah. or something like that. You just go to his Instagram and it's uh, it's Matt Matt being a, being a, being a wasting everybody's time on the West Coast. Yeah. So, yeah Hanging out with a bunch of Contra gorillas. That's right. <laughs> yeah. He is in the hills outside of Managua as usual. <laughs> And our friend Anthony Fisher certainly helped coordinate the things that are happening in the room. But, but who is that that, that baritone voice that we hear, Camille? Well, we do have some <laughs> guests in the room. We have two guests to introduce, to the authors of a new book, Sinking in the Swamp, not Shrinking the Swamp. I think they were supposed that to get rid happen. of the swamp. Yeah. But now apparently we're drowning in the swamp. Lachlan Markey. Yeah, yeah, we did that already. Yeah. Did I get that wrong once already? Yeah. Marquet. Yeah. Marquet. Emphasis on the K. Kind of like parquet. That's right. Yeah. That's good. And Aswin. <laughs> Subsang. 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 Yeah, let's just go with that. Yeah. And I'm going to call you Swin throughout yes, the rest please. of the as, as my friends do. Thank you. Are we friends? Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's see. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> we'll see how we'll it see goes. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Both of you gentlemen are White House reporters at the Daily Beast. And you are co-authors of this new book, Sinking in the Swamp, How Trump's Minions and Misfits Poisoned Washington. That yeah. is the correct subtitle. Indeed, it is. Right. Um, so you guys are out here on a book tour. You've been hitting up a bunch of different media outlets. Mm-hmm. Um, how have things been going? I'm exhausted, but, yeah. you know, it's good. We're selling books, so yeah. I can't complain. Which reminds me, if you're listening to this, you are legally obligated, yes. having press play on this podcast, yeah. to buy the book <laughs> and find bookstores and websites. Just turn everywhere. the podcast off. Don't listen to the rest of it. <laughs> and then just buy the book. And then listen afterwards. Well, you can only listen after you've listened to the book or read the book, whichever you prefer. We get, uh, just so you guys know, we have a um, a lot of uh, listeners and they really like sending us emails uh-huh. and uh, we can't keep up with them. So I will be sure to forward them on. So at the end of this, if you have, uh, don't send hateful things on Twitter because they're not going to listen to you on Twitter. <laughs> they have a lot of stuff to do. I will send all the hate mail. And by the way, just to kind of, you know, make everyone comfortable with the hate mail. I got an email today, mm. Camille, which I sent to you. And now this person, uh, Jeremy, mm-hmm. Jeremy, mm-hmm. if that is his real name, uh, is a Patreon subscriber yeah. and says, hey, I donated so I could complain. <laughs> I mean, if if only everyone who did. Dude, it's, it's the same would. thing as like when I when I went to uh, Universal Studios with my daughter a couple uh, weeks ago and I had to pay $8,000 to skip the line. Yeah. It's like a fast pass or whatever. Yeah. That's what this is. But uh-huh. it's like five bucks. And um, <clears throat> he said... Um, he, he started listening to the podcast because he thought it was Camille's podcast. Well, and, you know, all the other voices not, not wrong. he thought were in his head. Uh, it's a way better endorsement if they paid to snipe at you and yell at you. Anybody, anybody can pay precisely. for somebody they like. Yes, that's so. exactly This right. criticism is not free. Yeah. And um, he, this, he said this. I thought it was Camille's podcast. And this is really insulting to me. So I'm going to read it because I like humiliating myself. And then this dude with male vocal fry <laughs> is dominating the podcast. 
It will hardly let anyone else speak. By the way, I kept taking Adderall. Camille quit. This fucking problem. <laughs> not my fucking problem. I'm, I'm back on it now. I know. So that's I'm what we've been talking it. about recently, haven't you? I mean. That person turned out to be Moynihan. I will say he has since grown on me, but I, I especially like the accents. Uh, they're actually good. <laughs> they're, I'm actually there. Do you yeah, do doing like a lot of Julian Assange? Like, what, <laughs> yeah. he, he does what every, everyone. Uh, everyone. I'll from try all around the world. Like, Anyway, uh, if, so anyway, if one man could only speak in accents, the show would be 22% better. Very specific number. Um, if he's not going to speak in accents, perhaps he could consider speaking less. <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly don't think the recommendation so thank you for, with respect to accents is wrong. Um, I think that right. some of the best moments on this podcast have involved you doing uh, theatrical readings of, say, like. But I threaten to do like whole things in an accent. People get mad. And uh, this guy's asking for it. Well, we can't we can't satisfy everyone, but yeah. we, come, we come pretty close. All right, we well, can get back to. Our, I guess I just wanted to, I wanted to uh, bring that up because Jeremy, right? right. You know how I don't uh, say people's last names. Uh, I think I'm going to start. No, leave Jeremy alone. <laughs> All right, Jeremy. Leave thanks Jeremy for the uh, the the mail. Really appreciate it. By the way, I don't know what male vocal fry is, but I I can't help it. This is the way I talk. So if I get a picture of you, Jeremy, I'll make fun of things that are immutable about you and you can't talk. And by the way, I do like uh, the Red Scare podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts. And that's a, some serious vocal fry podcast. Oh, uh, I was going to say, what's the connection between the two? No, it's just the two Marxist okay. girls. Do you who, also listen to Chapo? No, I like, I don't like, the, I like the, the, the Red Scare girls a lot. Though. I've tried to listen to uh, Chapo once I don't think I, I some time have. ago. Yeah. I, I know that they're, they're, they're having a bit of a moment now mm -hmm. because their preferred candidate seems to be doing very yeah. well. No, they're very popular. Primaries, right. Yeah, the deal Swin and I had for the book was if Chapo invites us on, he's got to do that one. And if Ben Shapiro invites us on, I got to do that one. Uh, <laughs> right. We both, Solo? We both neither of us. Neither, neither of them have invited us. So. <laughs> right, exactly. So it doesn't matter. You're in this shitty podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so why, why split it up? Why not go together? Well, apart from the fact that the host may not want the other person on, leaving that aside, we both do have lines. I'm going to show up and they're going to don't want to roll out a guillotine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, what's up, Neocon? Well, well, like, just explain this to us uh, because you started at the Free Beacon. Yeah, Heritage the, Foundation. The, the Heritage Foundation and then uh, the Neocon Free Beacon. And right. you mentioned this in the book. You're not... Uh, you know, trying to hide that. Yeah. In Swin, um, both of the, you guys are both the Daily Beast now. You started at Mother Jones. That was my first So this is like probably. a uh, Carville Matlin type situation here. We, NPR <laughs> has affectionately <laughs> compared us to Bert and Ernie as well. Oh, God. Oh. Yeah. So we got that going for us. That's a, okay. yeah, that's uh, somebody who doesn't know Wait, who's politics. Who's Bert? I, I am Bert. Yeah. No, no, I, no, I am Bert. <laughs> okay, he's Bert. I, I am 100% Bert. <laughs> that's fine. You can't take that from me. So is this a, is, but is this a contentious marriage? Uh, because it sounds like it. Well, politics? Uh, no, not, no, not, not, not really. That may not be the real Okay, um, Lachlan, he went. I mean, if we were writing right. about, like, the merits of various foreign policies, you know, we might yeah. get into it a little bit, right. but, like... like this is the furthest thing from a policy book you're going to read yeah. about the Trump administration. Right. And so. Also, like we report together, we don't spend time writing op-eds together. So, yeah. but, but it's an opinionated book for sure. Sure, sure. Yes, I would say it. Ha I'm very fond of saying it has perspective, but not an yeah. agenda. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what that agenda would be. But, you know, the first thing that I thought actually was uh, reading it and I texted Camille because – and Camille was, we were both reading at the same time. And uh, the first thing I said to Camille, I was like, I wonder how these guys plan on reporting after this book comes out in mm -hmm. some ways. Because, I mean, look, you, all the people that are so presumably sources of yours, you've referred to them as D-listers and grifters and cranks <laughs> and losers. And it's like, yeah, it seems absolutely right. But does that affect in some way when you're trying to get access, uh, future access? Do you know that uh, 
Chris Rock bit, maybe it was from the early aughts or 90s, where he's like, why women really like misogynistic rap songs yeah. that are playing mm-hmm. at the club mm-hmm. is because, well, he's not singing about me. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you're not a, you're not a minion or a misfit. We're talking yeah. about all the other people in Trump. Work. I guess that's right. If, if you're not naming people specifically, although we should think we should clarify you, yeah. that you are referring to all of them. <laughs> I, I saw zero exceptions. <laughs> nine in the book. Nine out of ten. I yeah. got a I got a text the day the book oh, came yeah. out from uh, one of the one of the people who's uh, who's covered pretty extensively in the book, and I won't say who because I don't want to blow up this person's spot. But they fucking loved it. Mm-hmm. They were like, I'm I'm cutting up these pages and I'm framing them well, on my wall. Tr- a, tr- a Trump person. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, a, a Trump person. Well, a person doing, who worked in the Trump administration. No one can see. Yeah, I mean, right. we we do know that anonymous is still operating in the White House, presumably. Presumably. Eh. Um, Victoria, where is she now? <laughs> <laughs> but but there are, there are Writing other books people about who, who are supposed to be parts of the uh, Trump administration or perhaps aligned with the resistance. So when you say nine and ten, essentially anyone who is a true believer who's in the what in the Trump. You don't even have to be a true believer. You just Bad I mean news. sort of going with the program. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean yes, not the people we're writing about are not like actively resisting yeah. the, the administration. And as a matter of fact, at our book event in Washington. Uh, this guy raised his hand and he was like, you're covering all these uh, like political appointees. Why don't you cover like the brave civil servants who are like standing up to all this? And it was like, well, that's sort of like the opposite of the point that <laughs> we're trying book. to make here. Yeah, it's yeah. a different book. That's, that's, so. I've said this a number of times when reviewing books, never review, never have as part of your review, I, I wish this book was a different book, but the guy wrote a book that I don't want to read because <laughs> that's, that's often the case. It's like, well, I told him, do I this? Like, these people are not like, they're not leaking to us. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. what are we going to write about? So. Right. Also a point of the book is they're not the meat and potatoes of the Trump. They're, they're not right. the main course. Right. They're not what's actually defining the era. And, just and you guys say that, right? I mean, that's kind of the right. thing of like the D-listers and the sure. people that are important, but you don't make, you say at the beginning, maybe don't know their and names. You know what? That is not a terrible idea for a book. Yeah. Like civil servants in the Trump era. I'm not sure if I would write it. Somebody should. Yeah. Well, when, so when we were first approached so to Brookings. do a book, the idea that was sort of floated to us by people who wanted us to write something was write about the adults in the room. That yeah. was going to be like the title of the book. Yeah. The adults like, and you just couldn't find it. Like there's, well, a hundred of those books. And the whole premise of all of, of not just this book, but like all of our reporting at the Daily Beast is that either there are no adults in the room or they don't fucking matter. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. so when we were, we can't exactly write that. And we've, and that has been borne out pretty significantly. Yes. Talk to me about the value proposition for someone who picks up a book like this to read it, because as, as we've just established, there've been a lot of books written about the Trump administration, about the severe dysfunction of the Trump administration at sort of the higher levels, perhaps. Sure. It doesn't appear that there are sort of big stories that are broken as a consequence of this book being published, that there are massive new revelations. It's essentially viewing stories that you are familiar with from a different vantage point in many cases. And and, uh, there is a bunch of good juicy stuff in there. I should tell your listeners and and we can get into that with some (laughs) specificity in a little bit. Uh, Lachlan, I'll let you take this one well, first yeah, because I mean, I'll just start shitting the, all over the, Bob Woodward. The primary appeal, I think, of this book <laughs> versus me. like a Bob Woodward book or a Phil Rucker book or what have you is that it's entertaining and fun. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. like that – I mean not that – look, those people are all amazing reporters. Um, but, you know, we, we kind of wanted to bring a little bit of like character to it and like some self-deprecation. And um, and have fun with it. And, a lot of dark humor. Yeah. A lot of um, – You know, and – Look, it's tough to be competing with like some of the best reporters in the business on a daily basis, which you are doing if you're covering this White House. Um, So, you know, our value proposition was not necessarily like we're going to have the biggest earth shattering scoops um, and dwarf, you know, some TikTok being put out by like Maggie Haberman or John Swan or whoever. 
Um, you know, we're just going to we're going to have fun with it and hopefully give people like an unvarnished take on you know what we've seen. Well, first of all, as Lachlan was talking about, when we were trying to figure out what kind of book on Trump and the Trump era we were trying to write, well, we, we were talking about it's like, OK, how can we actually do something that's not going to be the same thing as the hundreds of books or millions or whatever that are going to already be out there by the time this book comes out? And something I that stuck with me for years, I saw many years ago, was this little clip that you can still find on YouTube. It's a mini documentary on the making of Goodfellas, the Martin Scorsese classic from 1990, mm-hmm. and interviewed in it is Nicholas Pelleggi or Pelleggi. Now I'm the one with yeah, uh, okay. last name problems. We endorse that here. Uh, of course. So a veteran crime reporter, amazing reporter and author who wrote Wise Guy, which the movie Goodfellas was based on. And he, in fact, he co-wrote the script with Scorsese as he did with the movie Casino. Anyway, mm-hmm. so um, uh, I'm lightly paraphrasing here, but he's talking about writing the book Wise Guy. It's like there were a lot of books written about mafia dons, your Lucianos, your Bugsy Siegels, your, your Gambinos. And he said he didn't want to do that. He, he said that if he wrote a book about Napoleon, he'd want to jump in a time machine and uh, go back to the Napoleonic Wars and grab a random foot soldier off of the battlefield of Napoleon's army and take down that guy's story. And through that guy's story, you tell the story of Napoleon sure. from the ground up. Yes, this, this is history from the ground up or, yes. or the gutter up. Exactly. The, case, the worm's the eye view. Which I think I borrowed from my, my good friend Thad Russell. <laughs> right. And so obviously for uh, Wise Guy and Goodfellas, it was Henry Hill, who in the movie was played by Ray Liotta. This nobody whose name you won't have ever heard of before the movie or book, who was a foot soldier in La Cosa Nostra Mm -hmm. in uh, New York City in the 70s and 80s. So we went about trying to find as many Henry Hills in Trump world as we possibly could and through their eyes and ears up telling the story of Donald J. Trump, the man, the legend, the political figure – and his past, present, and maybe even a little bit of his future. And to your point about who we explained this to, basically exactly what we just told you guys, is back in, was it about a year ago, we were sitting in uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders' office in the West Wing, who of course at the time was Trump's uh, chief spokeswoman, his uh, White House press secretary. Mm -hmm. His gatekeeper. Yes, and also not only that, and we get into this a little bit in the book, The degree to which Trump leaned on her for advice went far beyond just communications and the press. She was a chief advisor on policy, basically everything. Uh, She was a close confidant in all of those matters. Anyways, I digress. So Lachlan and I are having a little private meeting with her at the White House telling her, "Okay, so we're just starting to really write this book. And we would obviously like to go through all of our findings after with the president, with him, give him a fair hearing and interview him. For the book, we did not think anyone in the White House, especially not the president, would acquiesce to this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, you and got we, you we were correct. We, record, we were yeah. correct. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Sarah uh, take, scribble, seems to scribble something down a little piece of paper and says that she'll raise it with the president. We still don't know if she ever actually did. And uh, when I, we were explaining this premise to her, uh, we asked her, is she a fan of the movie Goodfellas? And she uh, said, yes, of course, uh-huh. big fan of this movie. As am I. I think that had been documented. She had like told someone before. Really? Talked about about, good about how she liked Goodfellas. Oh, a, good, a lot of people in that. Maybe, maybe, maybe you told me that. I don't know. Maybe. I was hoping, by the way, reading so, this, that the next uh, paragraph was going to be like Swin going, go get your fucking shine box. <laughs> <laughs> like, see, see what she did. She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's time for you to leave. Like, you haven't seen the movie. <laughs> that would have been a good tell. She's I the Billy Bats of the administration. Yeah. Right. So, um, <laughs> concede to her begrudgingly that, okay, there are some 
key differences between the Trump administration and La Cosa Nostra. A few. A few. <laughs> the, 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 and she yeah. sort of mockingly ribs me on it, being like, yes, I'm very grateful that you would be fucking gracious enough or whatever to uh, admit that. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing a little uh-huh. bit here. So my response to her is that one of the key differences is the White House has stronger NDAs yeah. uh, than the mob. <laughs> and she she responds, well, yeah, but the mob will just then kill you. That's exactly what I was just going to say. I bit my tongue and I told Lachlan. Didn't make a Jeffrey like, Epstein joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, the first thing that came to my mind is that the mob doesn't have the kill list that Obama gave to Trump. Yeah. And this transferable but, kill list. But so yes. far as we know, although it's a secret, there probably aren't many Trump administration officials who are on that list. Yeah, probably not on that list now. Yeah, no. Maybe, maybe. Maybe. Not. We don't know. Yeah, it's, I, I, it's anonymous. It's, anonymous. At this point, it's like Anwar Alonso. Go with anonymous. Like second cousin, Jim. <laughs> wouldn't, be, wouldn't it be ironic if John Bolton made his way on a <laughs> kill list? Huh. An American. Like, you know what? An American one. That's a good right. way for me to go. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, the funny thing is about the, this book, one of the things that I don't think it's just because of my vantage point of reading the book is that it's a book in a lot of ways about journalism. And the the thing that we often find with the people who listen to this show, um, they often want to talk about journalism. I mean, like half the questions and half the things that can you talk more about the type of journalism X, Y, and Z. So when Camille recently went to Hong Kong to cover the protests, we had a, we did a, a Patreon episode in which we were talking about how he should cover it. And it, it generated all this like really excited email. And then I go out like I was in Iowa and everybody you talk to at the Sanders rally and at the Trump rally have that unifying thing of that they kind of hate the media. But at the same time, they Everyone also hate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. And and it's what is it? 40, 40 percent of uh, people trust the media now. It used to be. Oh, it's got to be lower than no, that. The, no, it's, it, the, the, the Gallup one went up. It went up like ten, okay. like a, a, a significant amount. I think, I think it might be like by party. No, I think it was 38 or 40, but either way. But, but, you know, but, you know, you talk, I mean, the Sanders people have the Chomsky manufacturing consent idea of the, the uh-huh. media. Corporate the Trump, media. Yeah, corporate sure. media, the Trump, Trump people. So when I'm reading this, like, you know, the media angle on this, I think, is really interesting, especially now when you're, you know, officially an enemy of the people rather than just like a pain in their ass and they'll just ignore you. So just on a like most basic level, how does one, for instance, get Sarah Huckabee Sanders to sit down with you, take a meeting with you when all she has to do is open up her browser or Twitter and say, hmm, I don't know. These guys aren't MAGA people. We're not this, these, these aren't Claremont Institute types. We're incredibly charming. Yeah, it's, and that's just the charm. That and also, um, if you're a good reporter and you're reporting things, even if it's with a tone that yeah. the administration doesn't like, if it's accurate and if it's raising enough lines for them, they don't have they don't really have that much of a choice yeah. for a lot of them. You 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 get them to the table with you know just your hard work and whatever skill and acumen you get, can mm. bring to it. But a, a quick point on like, um, look, like they all label me a Marxist. Mm-hmm. They know that I'm very upfront in public and on social media about my uh, Marxism. View, that and yeah, my views of Trump, his policies, his administration, his who he is as a man. Lachlan is your beard, isn't it? Well, well, oh, wait, I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that <laughs> because I'm so upfront about it. They a lot of them if not most of them, actually appreciate that. For the, th- yeah, there's yeah. no pretending. There's no, I'm not going in there saying, ah, oh, just the facts, ma'am, down yeah. the middle. I don't vote, any of that bullshit. But a lot of them, I got to tell you, when they when they talk about Lachlan, yeah. 
Like the apostasy is way worse than oh, it is. Like oh, sure. the disagreement. Wow. Yeah. You left yeah. really. So like you know, you love the sinner. Lachlan like sold out to the left wing Daily Beast is like way worse than like. Well, he was at Mother Jones and then he moved to. So that's actually movement. He's in the being right honest. Direction a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That that's what I found at least. And like I have a lot of friends and well former friends in conservative media <laughs> now who just like do, do you do you legitimately have friends in the kind of conservative universe who no longer talk to you? Yes, hundred percent. Because of well, where just, you are or because of specifically things you've written? Probably specific things I've written. Yeah. Um, and the fact that I write with him. And like, I remember it was so bizarre. This was like late 2017, early 2018. And it was something we wrote. I don't remember what it was. Maybe it was even just a tweet. And we had Sean Davis of The Federalist yes. coming after us like really, really hard. Yes. Um, and uh, Sean was someone who was, I, I was always on good terms with. He like promoted my work. I wrote for The Federalist a few times. Um, Sean was also ferociously critical of Trump. Trump that's correct. Yeah. Yes. And thing. as was Ben Dominich, the publisher of The Federalist, who has since blocked me on Twitter for reasons I don't know. I'll, I'll ask him about ben, it. No, you don't have to ask him. Ben is a, a very religious listener of the show. He always uh, oh, sends messages that's with. with uh, so, Ben, what's up? Yeah, with, with, with complaints, <laughs> criticisms, uh, or just high fives once in a while. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and he's been on the show before. Which yeah. was always weird to me because all the people you're talking about who have, I don't know if it's too strong a term, but who have kind of shunned you in that respect. Yeah. Like when the fucking liberal was president of the United States, Obama, I remember maybe not the specific people you just referred to, but a lot of these people I was on good terms with. Uh, whatever they wrote about the Democratic Party at the time, it didn't really have any bearing on my relationship. I mean, there were plenty of people who, like, ecosystem. didn't take me seriously because I was writing for the Washington Free Beacon. They were like, all right, you know, <laughs> crazy, like neocon. We can safely ignore these people. Um, but, like, I hadn't made that, you know, in their minds, like, political transition. So it wasn't like I knew people and then they just stopped talking to me when I started, like, reporting critically about, about, about Obama. Um, but that was, like, a weird thing in yeah. 2017 was, like, all of a sudden – um, you know, these like, you know, not like intimate friendships or anything, but uh -huh. like the number of people who just like wouldn't engage. But this doesn't, this yeah. doesn't flow in one direction, obviously. No, of course I mean, not. This, of course this, not. It's as you guys wrote about the uniquely divisive moment that we find ourselves in politically and the stratification being that anyone essentially who finds themselves defending or simply subscribing to the perspective of the Trump administration in, in any way, shape or form, like oftentimes gets themselves into trouble. And for me personally, since I have publicly on a number of occasions, like challenged certain allegations, like the president is a racist or every instance of the president doing something is racist to the extent I'm interested in actually looking at the allegation and asking people to substantiate it. Like this becomes a, a defense of Trump and something that I've been criticized for even castigated and suggested I'm some sort of closet defender of the Trump administration. You're wearing a MAGA hat, right? Well, now. I am. Yeah, I, that's, but, I wish we had one of those Joe Rogan type cameras <laughs> in there auto switching between you and somebody. Yeah, well, there's like, not a lot of there's not a lot of patience for actually understanding one another's perspectives in, in the current political. Moment. No, and, and I think in that, a lot of instances. And I think that what probably benefits you guys quite a bit is that after a while, you know people's politics, but you also know the way they deal with the information they're given. And if they're playing it down the middle, or if they're they're sort of you know clipping quotes to 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 be punchier than they normally would be, and then you trust them. I mean, the funny thing about Trump is you know whinging about the fake news and the failing New York Times. And who does he talk to? That's, I mean, that's right. Maggie Hammond right. is like I mean she she has a a, a, di a direct line, and she is maybe know, not so much anymore. Not so much anymore. Yeah, but it's it's she's presumably even put in those early, like first couple of years. 
years, the most hated person and the most hated newspaper. But it's like, wait, why is she and why is Steve Bannon talking to Michael Wolf? It's like yeah. the game is pretty interesting. I mean, peop, I don't trust people who come into interviews saying, I know about you. I know what you think about X, Y, and Z. It's like, just know either that I'm a straight shooter or I'm not, that I'm going to treat you fairly or not. So don't like, I mean, the, the, I think I told you at the time when Al Gore, I interviewed Al Gore, which was literally the most fucking boring interview of all time. It was like three <laughs> hours and we struggled to get like a four minute cut. Because he didn't it. want to let his guard down. Uh, it was just because he had nothing to say. He was just like droning on and on. He's not the most dynamic. No, and I, like, he's the guy when you ask him, this is the most bullshit thing. I was like, okay, this is a thing you ask people sometimes to get, you know, a good conversation going. When I saw it was flagged a bit. I said, mm -hmm. you know, if we look back at your record, tell me one thing you really regret. There's one thing they said like that, actually, if I could change this, you know, blah, 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 my legacy. And he was like, you know, sugar subsidies in Tennessee. And I was like, you gotta be <laughs> fucking kidding me. Sugar subsidies. But when I came in, he was like, um, you know, who uh, really likes uh, the new film that I did. And he mentions one of those Niskanen guys. Uh -huh. And he was like, you know, because I know, you know, Wilkins? you were in, uh, no, um, whatever one, yeah. one of the, uh, and, and uh, I, I, maybe, probably. Uh, and he was like, uh, you know, because I know you're in Sweden and I know that you were uh, at uh, this think tank there. And then I know you worked at Reason, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait, you literally, did you have someone give you like, like a, like a readout of the things that I'd done so you could Respons judge how to talk to me? 100%. Yeah, 100%. Like, yeah. no, it's not responsible. <laughs> I think it is. But if you bring that sh shit up, it's like, you know, just, I wouldn't bring it up. He's been having people yeah. do that for him for 25 years. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But it's just me. Like, <laughs> dude, maybe it's like somebody, like, important. Can I Can I return to this, this uh, like, mafia theme and the, Absolutely. the approach of sort of thinking about the Trump administration as some sort of mafia um, organization? Obviously, like, that, that premise... In the context of Goodfellas, the source material like yields one of the quintessential mob movies. What do you think the quality of like a mob movie based on a, a book like this would be? Because this particular gaggle of characters oftentimes doesn't seem particularly dangerous. They're bumbling. They have no particular skill when it actually comes to pulling off the schemes that mm -hmm. they might be getting into. Does that have the makings of a particularly dynamic thriller? I don't think I, I don't think we see Trump world as like mob esque. I think yeah. that that comparison ends at just how we tried to approach the book. And they're always snitching, which is well, they're, that's they're right. snitching. Yeah. Trump is a, personally a cartoon caricature, and he models himself as such, and has for decades mm -hmm. for what a McDonald's adult brain may think the mob is actually like having <laughs> watched a lot of Hollywood. Uh -huh. So in that way, the comparison kind of holds up if you're talking about cinema. Uh, but sorry, Lachlan, I cut you off. Oh, no, I, I mean, I, I don't think the Trump administration is mob-esque for all the reasons you just mentioned. Like, this is not a tightly run ship for the most part. It's very factional. Um, there's really, well, if you'd asked me a few months ago, I would have said, like, there's really not much in the way of consequences for dissenters. You know, they may, like, lose out on a job in the administration, but, like, the president hasn't really succeeded in, like, you know, keeping folks in line to the degree that, like, the Obama White House did, for instance. They were a famously, um, like, there were no leaks coming out of the Obama White House. They were, you know, effectively able to, like, keep a lid on that sort of stuff. If that were the case with this White House, we wouldn't have a book to write. Like, the, we were only really successful as White House reporters because this place was just so, like, uh, dysfunctional and factional and there was so much infighting that, like, we'd get these folks to talk to us and to just, like, talk shit about their colleagues. So, 
Um, so I certainly would not compare it to La Cosa Nostra. <laughs> but, but I mean, I mean the, the, well, the thing that you have in a mafia situation when you are, you know, flipping somebody, you flipping a Henry Hill in that moment right. when he's in, when he's in the office talking to the guys after he gets arrested is like you obviously have to judge the quality of their information, mm. how much of it is self serving, yeah. and the rest no, of it. For sure. I mean, how do you, how do you guys uh, go about that? I mean, you have a scene in the book which is like like geez, I can imagine working in a place like this where Sean Spicer is flipping through somebody's phone to see if the yeah. person is a source and right. like looking at their text messages yeah. and it's this kind of paranoid it's atmosphere. A bizarre scene. Yeah. It's bizarre in like, you know, so how do you go about that? Because you say it is so factional and it is transparently from your book and from other reporting is like, this guy's obviously feeding me a bunch of shit, but I got a deadline. So, I mean, are you taking time with this stuff and saying, I think that maybe, I mean, are you leaving things that seem like good scoops on like somewhere else because you can't verify. Yeah. I mean, there's a a story in the the book about these ridiculous tips we started getting from a supposed insider from a a great email address. Yeah. Swampy DC insider at (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yahoo.com. Little on the news. (laughs) I mean, some of it was like run of the mill insidery sort of palace intrigue, but then some of it was just so ridiculous. And that was about MMA fighting. Yeah. Well, it was so Stephen Chung, who is a former white house staffer who was a UFC promoter before joining the Trump campaign. They were, like, yeah, he's fighting in an underground boxing <laughs> ring in Wilmington, Delaware. What the hell is going on in this country? <laughs> so, like, that was that was one of the better examples. We of, want like, to establish that that's so This absurd. is unlikely to be true. It is not true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it is not true. Okay. I'm um, sure. But to, to your question, um, very often what the process is, is, like, this person is telling me something that could very well be bullshit. Um, and this other person is telling me this other thing that is probably also bullshit. And like, let's try to cross reference or like bounce something that one faction is telling us off of another faction. And through this like cascading series of lies, try to triangulate like one fact that all these different people are telling you. So you're a prosecutor in a lot of ways, going through the evidence and saying who's most likely to cross referencing the lies and figuring out the reportable kernel of truth, the middle. And that's what appears on the pages of the dailybeast.com or um, in this new book. And I mean, that strategy is true if you want to be a good political reporter for anything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't apply just to Trump world. Yeah, no, sure. Can I, can I ask a question about the beast itself, sure. which actually all of you have had some prior affiliation. I, I worked there in yeah, one case yeah, and yeah. current affiliation. Yeah. You describe it in the book as a highbrow tabloid. That's what how is, the beast is. What is the, what is the role of a highbrow tabloid in the American media ecosystem? And, and how is that – why is that particularly important in, in this political moment? I mean one of the like guiding principles at the Daily Beast is just not to be boring with the stuff that you're writing about. Um, I think like – having dry reporting is like anathema to the way the Daily Beast sort of approaches it. So, I mean, our our sort of platonic ideal of a political story is something that like breaks major news about sort of larger than life characters and does it in an entertaining way, mm-hmm. um, which is not to say that like it's not fun to read the New York Times or to watch NBC News or something like that. But I think we put a higher premium on um, – uh, I don't want to say entertainment that sort of sells it short, yeah. but like on it being engaging and fun content. If it's something that we feel objectively is flamboyant or outrageous, that will be reflected in the headline. Like, the, okay, here's an example. Uh, we, we got a tip one time, and I think we mentioned this briefly in the book about when Rex Tillerson was fired and there was an off the record meeting with reporters right after that. And John Kelly is telling 
telling all these reporters that an off the record and that, White House official. which we were not invited to. So we were not bound by these off the record rules that when he had called John Kelly to fire him. Uh, I'm sorry. When he had called Rex Tillerson to fire him, Rex Tillerson was on the toilet. He yes. was taking a shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and, yeah. and he's telling reporters this. That's some. And then I had to email the State Department spokesperson. <laughs> wow. And be, and be like, believe me, I'm as okay. embarrassed asking you this as you are. But did you, I did have you to ask, use more like a word like defecate or something. I was like, yeah, in a, <laughs> on in the toilet, yeah. <laughs> evacuating. So that's like something that I don't know if like a Washington Post assignment editor would be very keen on. Yeah. And it's something that is very much and in the mold of like Daily Beast political coverage. Uh, so when we say like a highbrow highbrow tabloid, that's like a good example. Right. I do not think Marty Baron would be like, yes, make that detail the headline and give me (laughs) 600 words on this show. A1, baby. Editor-in-chief of the DailyBeast.com, Noah Shackman, is like, why hasn't this been filed already? Yeah, and we filed it on like a Friday at 4.30 p.m. And it was like the most traffic we got on any story that year. I remember it. And then John John Goodman was then. Was Rex Tillerson the following day. Referencing it directly like that weekend on Saturday Night Live. And it was funny because I really think the quality of the satire and comedy in SNL is god awful during the Trump era. And when fucking John Goodman, this great actor, was playing Rex Tillerson, doing our thing, our our story on the show. Basically, all he was doing was reading a paraphrase, a light paraphrase of our headline or a yeah. lead to the story. I'm like, this is your shtick in the Trump era. Uh-huh. You just read the news. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> and a, try to get people to laugh. It's the spoonful of sugar, you know, wrapping the dog's pill in cheese or something. Because, you know, otherwise, most people are not going to know anything about Rex Tillerson even being fired, if you ask right. the average person. That's and now they know it from yeah. SNL. But you you mentioned in the book that it's uh, it was John Avalon um, who said, you know, we're, we're – um, you know, whatever the line was. Nonpartisan, but non-neutral. No, the tabloid thing. Non-neutral. Uh, 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 smartest uh, tabloid on the internet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and that is, it's a version of what Tina Brown said when she started the Daily Beast was uh, a mixture of highbrow and lowbrow, which is what she loved about Vanity Fair mm. and why there was an almost revolt against her when she took over the editorship of The New Yorker because she introduced pictures, right? Uh, and she was like, that was, you know, a sacrifice. Oh, and, no. And, yeah. yeah, and then putting like like great writers in there, like Clive James was writing stuff, punchier writers, hired, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the OJ guy, I just Simpson. Liked, uh, OJ Simpson, yeah. <laughs> Hired OJ Simpson <laughs> to write to write yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to write about alcoholics. <laughs> it was just a good move. Yeah, it was just called the Drive. Really good piece. Um, no, uh, uh, Jeff Tubin. That's what I was thinking. Uh, yeah, the guy, the the guy who got the girl pregnant. Um, just look that up. It's in their book because it's a gossipy book. Oh my god! You know about that, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Jeff Greenfield, Jeff Tubin, who one of the Jeffs. Okay. Um, but yeah, so we did, or I did, a special dispatch of uh, this very podcast with just uh, myself and Tina, mm-hmm. and we talked about that. It was one of my favorite uh, interviews to do because she's amazingly funny and gets an incredibly raw deal mm. um, from a lot of people. And it is the actual one time that, that I will just out and out say that the, the, when people say that she is the victim of sexism, it is true. And it is true in the sense that like, you know, she was this horrible bitch to work for. And this is, you look at talk magazine, you look mm-hmm. at um, Vanity Fair and say, 
And no, she's just a really tough editor. Okay, just to be it, sure, you were quoting someone else when you Yeah, said, no, I don't okay. think that about Tina at all. Okay. No, no, like when people just gave her a really hard time about yeah. this. And it's like, no, she's just like every great uh, magazine editor that I've ever worked for or been around. And she kind of established that idea of the Daily Beast of yeah. high and low. And like, we'll, we'll bring people in with like, you know, galleries, like, which I don't even know if they have anymore. The Cheat Sheet, which, uh, you know, we can- we, Oh, still, that's still, we still there, That's still there, right? That. Yeah, that's, that's still there. Yeah, been yeah. extremely successful. Yeah. Yeah, that's I mean, and that's a lot of clicks. Yeah, but yeah, I mean that is something that. Well, and I'm like, told that I don't know what the numbers are specifically, but apparently by far the biggest traffic driver to the Daily Beast is Royals coverage. From what yeah, I oh yeah, really? it was Tom Sykes that used to do that. I right, think. I mean that, yeah. Uh, yeah, and Tim Teeman. Oh and Tim, like, yeah, I yeah, love Tim. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. like it's amazing. People yeah. go nuts. Yeah. I think there there is a certain <laughs> category of person who's likely to be very critical of a publication like the Daily Beast, but I, I think there is an appetite for this, and it is definitely true, as you pointed out, Moynihan, that there are plenty of people who simply aren't going to be tuning in to regular news and the scintillating details are often enough to make someone pay a little bit of attention. And I think it does matter if the president of the United States, for example, particular administration is just lousy with really shady characters who get up to bizarre things and who have weird things to say, who jump on the phone with reporters and forget to say that this is off the record and then proceed to get into like just a, really disgusting, awful, profanity-laced um, episode of The Fifth Column. Um, yeah, 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 <laughs> like yeah, yeah. That, is, that is a weird situation, and there, there ought to be places where that kind of stuff is getting attention. But it, 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 because yeah. at the end of the day, personnel is policy, and uh, you can't report on a ridiculously corrupt era in administration without talking about, as you point out, all the shady characters floating around. It's so. 100% true, and it's, it's – if uh, – a magazine or a newspaper is doing its job, they're going to be called fake news. So that's like kind of the thing in this Trump era because they do all this shady stuff and then you accurately report on it in these like diehard Trump people. Like I was at the Trump rally in in, in Iowa recently and talking to people about their opinions on the media. And they're like, oh, they report this. And I'm like, yeah, you know, you know, all that's true, right? Like, yeah, no, (laughs) fake news. It's those fake news guys. And it's like, unless you're O-A-N-N, is there two N's in that, by the way? No, The one American news They've rebranded. No, oh, it's they, just they one, one America O-A-N. News. Yeah. Oh, so they dropped an N. I think so. Yeah, because yeah, it used to be O A N N. Right. One. <laughs> yeah, that's a great acronym. Well, it's fine because it's still called One America News Network, but they're they go by O A N. Okay, so they dropped dropped. I've I've seen it one time. It took them a little while to figure. And it. I thought it was a joke. I mean, I truly was like, "What the fuck is this?" Yeah. Remember, I I cut together that Janine Pirro thing. Yeah. I should I should, I should post that. Because I haven't watched Fox in ages, and I watched this Janine Pirro thing, and I was like, mm. "Oh my god, this woman's mentally ill." Yeah, she's, like, she's sc- going. She was going off on Mitt Romney. Oh, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. It was so crazy. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, crazy people like that on the Republican Democratic side have existed for fucking ever. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it there is something to be said about it being supercharged, and a lot of other salient factors being supercharged when the racist game show host personality cult is the thing they're rallying. Camille's going to disagree with you. Yeah, whatever. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I well, did you, well, which yeah. words do you, did, game show host, the game show host is, personality is, is, cult. Is easy. Although The Apprentice, yeah, it was definitely a game show. So he's a game show host. Yeah. The personality, personality cult, cult, I think that's fair to say. Like yeah. whatever the conservative movement is right now, it is all about Trump. The racist bit of it is of all of the charges that are slung at Donald Trump, I think it is the one that is the most frequently repeated and the least well substantiated. Do you think, think 
the policies aren't racist. He personally isn't racist. His actions in the past, including in the 1970s, weren't ra- like what? Well, I'd, he's exhausted all of my goodwill and benefit. I'd Dad, I, I don't res- see why. You- I'd say with respect to the description of like the administration's policy goals and the current conduct of the man himself, like without getting into the stuff with like housing and the questions surrounding the Central Park Five, I'm not certain that that's particularly useful in this context. Definitely when I hear people talk about stuff like Charlottesville or the specific charge of racism as you substantiated in the book is with like birtherism and perhaps Mm -hmm. we could talk about immigration policy as well. Um, The birtherism stuff, I I frequently hear it suggested that birtherism is in fact racist, but he uses the same tactic against Ted Cruz – and it's also the case that this is a president who has a proclivity for conspiracy theories. Like, does it Ted matter? Ted Cruz is a person of color, I should know. <laughs> whatever, whatever that means. So yeah, are you, yeah, Jacqueline. Yeah. We all are. Yeah. Um, and also, you like, you, uh, you couldn't pronounce his last name because he's Cuban-American. <laughs> Just so you know. I, I don't think I'm saying anything that you haven't heard before when people are arguing with you about this, but just because it's used against someone who may not be who is not black or whatever no, doesn't just, mean it's not a racist. No, well, I'm, I'm just like saying can, that it is entirely possible to make those arguments because you are simply a conspiracy theorist who's drawn to conspiracies. And it's possible to imagine him doing it if Barack Obama was Swedish and mm. there were some questions what, about his birth certificate. I'm, I'm using air quotes and no one can see it. But, what about but, bigoted? But, but the question becomes, but well, I don't, I don't want to go too far down to like adjudicating all those things. Cause for me, like I will make precisely the same argument when I see like that clip of Mike Bloomberg, that's been making the rounds recently where he was on PBS and he was talking about like the 90 some percent of young uh, black uh, and Hispanic men who aren't prepared to go out and do interviews and yada, mm-hmm. yada, yada. And I see this this clip being circulated in the media ecosystem, and it's obviously like 17 seconds of a broader conversation. And it seems disingenuous and unfair to peddle this and to suggest Mike Bloomberg is an abject racist. Right. The broader context doesn't help. The broader, no. Actually, it does help. You, it's, you Mike, so? it's Mike Bloomberg at his most woke. It's, it's him talking about programs that try to advance and benefit minorities. And while I can be skeptical of the programs, and I might even be skeptical of his motives, it's, it seems completely bizarre to me to impugn him for racism when you can find plenty of examples of high-profile black people making exactly the same sort of observations, talking about a particular segment, a cohort, this is the word he uses, of the black community who is ill-prepared to be as successful as they ought to be. And they may point at different social ills for the reason they're ill-prepared. And, and again, as I said, I, I make these observations in different places, and the reason I think it matters is because I think there's actually an opportunity to maybe persuade people on one end of the spectrum. And on the other, there's this condemnation that goes hand in hand with it, where if you're supporting this person, you two are also infected with the racism that supposedly undergirds all of their policy agendas. I mean, my, um, I just, my views on when it comes off to Trump me, but, probably differ a little bit from Swins, despite us uh, you know, having leveled these charges on, on a book with uh, both of our names on it. Like, so since racism has expanded as like this political epithet in recent years, it's come to encompass a lot more, like a much larger spectrum of activity and and uh, prejudice, et cetera. So like Trump seems to me to have all the prejudices you would expect of someone who grew up in the outer boroughs in like the 1960s in ethnically diverse neighborhoods where like 
you know, it was pretty common to like hold various stereotypes about various ethnic groups. Um, that seems to me to, like it's not like the hard racism of like a Charlottesville marcher or a neo-Nazi or something like that. Um, the catch all of racism as a modern political epithet now includes, I mean, very it's, it's not very often that the distinction is made between like that, that extreme violence uh, racism as it would, you know, it's always been understood and like the uh, more nebulous sort of prejudices that are just sort of lumped together. And it, it, to, to the Bloomberg thing is that, you know, from Camille's perspective, I think the first thing you see when you watch that, I watched half of it today and it's like, oh, you know, I, even not paying attention to the actual policy prescriptions, he's speaking uh, like a man who's his age, right? right? And, sure. it's, and, and, and predating kind of a lot of language shifts by about a decade. He's insufficiently careful. So he's, in, it, that's for sure. But the one thing I think that the, to, I mean, we, and, and Camille and I disagree on a lot of elements of this, but I would say this, I think it is important. I used to dismiss it and you just made a point that I was like, oh, that's actually quite, <laughs> that's a good point. The reason I think it's actually important to adjudicate these things and whether or not Trump is actually a racist and it's a hard thing to pin down, people that have different opinions, because you do hear the argument that you just said. You're like, well, you know, you are a supporter of a racist president and therefore. So there's a there's a bit of a like the collateral damage charge. If you I mean, because most of the people that I talk to when I talk to Trump supporters and I do it quite often, don't <clears throat> believe that at all. They don't believe he's racist at all. And they make not necessarily a, a, an argument similar to yours, but I also agree with Sven on this thing, is that, is he a bigot? I think that's un, undoubtedly true. And, and you could get into sort of a definitional thing. But if you are saying, sort of straight up saying, we need to keep Muslims out of the country, that's a bigoted statement, right? And you can go back and say, well, no, no, they're not all, you know, it was like, no, it, it was like the axis of evil. It's like, hey, says, we put North Korea yeah. in there. It's like, <laughs> come right. on. Oh my God. Oh come my God. God. <laughs> These fucking hogs in my profession who work in media and who are actually supposed to be fucking smart political reporters. I'm not going to name names. Yeah. Who Please bought do. into that and said, yeah. well, you can call it travel ban. It's not Muslim ban anymore. Yeah, no, he called it the Muslim ban. He first. called it the Muslim ban himself. Yeah, he did that first. He was like, it's a Muslim ban. Just because they put like yeah venezuela's uh, in there now too. right yeah, yeah they yeah, put yeah. caracas on yeah, the yeah, or yeah. something it, it's like you, you know, know that they're episode, all laughing like just put caracas on there seriously <laughs> yeah fucking hilarious you know that episode of the simpsons where he's having flashback to when he's locating he's trying to get in the treehouse with the girls and it says the no homers club yeah <laughs> another kid named homer sticks his head out of the window and she's like it's called the no homers club. we're allowed to have one it's like this little patina of, just so the john roberts court can be like okay fine here's the fucking rubber stand it's like please yeah fucking yeah. Drown your t- okay. yeah. I think and, that and, that's that's and I'll make an make, explicit yeah. concession. I yeah. do think that it is fair to call it a Muslim ban because that's what the president called it first when he was running for office, and he suggested we needed to keep these people out until, until we, we figure, figure out. Did they figure out what's going on? It's not obvious. Ever have like they were having a press conference? Hey guys, we figured we figured out what's going on. You guys seen any findings from the administration suggesting they've seen what they figured out what was going on? Lachlan did figure out what was going on. Borgo figured out what was going on. Yeah, before he could tell. Well, it's in a book, and the president should buy it and then cancel the Muslim ban because we figured it out. Okay, well, tell us tell us what, what how you figured it out um, or how they figured it out. Uh, you, you gotta buy the book, man. You, yeah, you yeah. give away. I'm, not gonna, I'm like I'm John Bolton over I've here. I've already done it, but I'm chapter 14. I've already done it, but I'm trying to remember the section where you guys talk about the figure. It's, it's it in the acknowledgements. You got to really get to yeah, the yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. And it's an acrostic. So you, and <laughs> not, uh, by the way, uh, do you either of you have any interactions with Seb Gorka? Because oh, yeah. I th- I, he's, he blocked me so long ago that I don't even re- remember why. So he, <laughs> I don't uh, know what he, he I actually, did. When we started, the, f- the first byline we ever shared was a story about Seb Gorka. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. This was like April or May 2017, and the White House was already looking to put him somewhere else because he was just being a pain in the ass in the West Wing. Um, So we reported on that, and that was, you know, we reached out to him for comment, of course, and he politely demurred, and then that was the last polite interaction we had. Yeah, he sent some emails to us, too. So he sent, like, uh, a little under a year later, I just got, I hadn't spoken to the guy in months, not that he ever speaks to me, but I hadn't reached out to him. Um, And he sends me an email out of the blue, and he says, um, Do the voice, do the voice. No. <laughs> yeah. He says, I was just speaking to a reporter and they told me you have a cocaine problem. That's not true, is it? <laughs> I think he's done that to a few people. Has he? Too. Okay. Because yeah. yeah, I think I know who, uh, the mutual friend who told him that I have a cocaine problem. And I hope. Did you write back? It's not a problem at all. <laughs> I like, I like I said, a little too. I said, you're the only drug I need, Seb. Or your yeah. love and appreciation is wow. the only drug I There's need. There's nothing wrong with a little too. That's all you That is the appropriate response. Also, wow. to be fair, problem is a relative term. Yeah. Absolutely. Completely subjective. Um, uh, And then he sent like a long email to Swin once telling me he has no moral center and he's praying for his soul. (laughs) Yes, I don't don't want your fucking prayers. Was it nice to know that he's concerned about you personally? I'm sure he was writing that email from the makeup chair before he filmed his commercial (laughs) when he's like, what is he selling now? What is like, like, uh, it's like fish oil pills. pills. Yeah. Yeah, to be fair, I take take fish oil supplements every morning. Not those. So that was actually going back to what we were talking about earlier with like people in conservative media who Uh, like won't don't want anything to do with me anymore. Ripping on Seb Gorka was a big one like that. A lot of people in like the neocon community, like national security community, fucking despise me for going, which like for making fun of Seb Gorka relentlessly for like six months. The vast majority, Uh, not all of it. I made fun of him. Yeah, but all you did was this happened i'm gonna state it accurately it's hard i wrote a i wrote like a 200 word piece because someone tweeted a photo you know he has this instantly recognizable ford mustang because his license plates spell art of war or art war (laughs) uh, with the don't tread on me virginia license plates so uh and someone tweeted a photo not the hungarian guy with the british accent yeah Yeah, i got it sure it makes sense um he was in arlington virginia and he it's like on a fucking highway and he just parked his car like on the sidewalk on the grass there's no parking lot. There's no parallel parking. He just pulled his car off the road. I, I saw this. And yeah. left. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and that, I was amazed. So I actually wrote a story for the Daily Beast about that. And that was what really set off a lot and of his friends. Really? Yeah. Because yeah. the thing is, is you had, he, he wrote this junky uh, dissertation for like, I, I can't remember. Yeah, it was like what, a Budapest university. Yeah, yeah. It was like the Fides University of right. anti-Semitism or something. <laughs> and he, uh, and it's like not very good. I Because there used to be a PDF of it online. I'm sure you can still get it. And it's just not very good. But he always struck me as in the national security community as one of these kind of Frank Gaffney types, you oh, know? He is, yeah. 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 Like he's not a serious figure in any way. And, you know, I can hear the, I can hear people's eyes rolling, listening to this saying like a serious person, like who, but like, you know, that aren't complete cranks and actually could be uh, wrong, but know what they're talking about in a wrong. Mm. Whereas he just seems like somebody who's like making it up as he goes. Well, you know, the FBI actually paid him for like counterterrorism trainings. Uh, it was actually in like 2015 and 2016. Yeah. He had a company oh. that was doing like contract uh, training work for the FBI. It's wow. beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. It was like men who stare at goats. So <laughs> apparently Quantico was taking him seriously, That's whether or not we were. Yeah. Good to know. Want a seal of approval? I mean, Donald Trump is the president. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Who, None of this. cares? <laughs> well, there's something in the back toward the back of the book where you guys talk about the perverse relationship between sort of being someone in journalism who is responsible for covering this incredibly dysfunctional administration and this bizarre moment in our politics and the the odd dynamic of having 
a job that seems to benefit from the dysfunction, um, but also your just humanity, which makes you wish that you perhaps were a little less busy. I wish I were poorer yeah, financially. Yeah. Yeah. But, but part of what I wonder about as well, and, and it's not something you guys mentioned, but I suspect you would acknowledge that it's true, is that in a dynamic like that, there's necessarily going to be a bit of an incentive to hyperventilate. Oh, I think we say that almost hysterical. I mean, we compare, um, I think this is actually why Morning Joe canceled on us because in the context of of Joe Scarborough's coverage of their campaign and early Trump administration, we talk about- You guys do talk about them a little bit. Yeah, the relationship between media and Trump as like a bad marriage where they hate each other and they scream at each other and I'm going to leave you mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. but they never do because they're in love and they need each other and uh yeah. um you know each one feeds off of each other um there's no prenup I mean the New York Times stock price has tripled since Trump was elected yeah. uh we've written a book viewership uh, is way up for cable news Yep sure. Les Moonves said it you know he was like Trump may be terrible for America but he's great for CBS mm-hmm. um there's no doubt that um you know and I was doing like investigative type reporting at the Free Beacon in the Obama administration. And there really wasn't, compared to these days, much competition when it came to like looking into corruption type stories in the Obama administration. Funny though. Um, and it's a little <laughs> strange, right? So part of that, of course, is there's just when you have the billionaire with the sprawling global business empire, there's going to be more on that front. Yeah, right about. Easy, but yeah. it's hard to dispute that like there is much more interest in unearthing damaging information about Donald Trump than there was. About so when would you Obama. would you say you agree with that assessment? Uh I would put a different spin on it. I think if you go back, there was a lot of damaging and negative stories about Obama and the administration that came out from, from let's just stick to mainstream media, the New York Times sure. or uh, Washington Post. W- one of many subjects we could talk about uh, where actually the opposite has happened is uh, think about the last time you read a front page New York Times or Washington Post story on the deleterious effects of Trump's drone war. That's right. He, that's that'll that's right. never happen. Right. Yeah, we, yeah. With Obama, that was a huge, huge thing, that's as right. it should have been. And Trump has amped it up. Civilian right. casualties have gone up. Yeah. Trump has taken off some of the pseudo guardrails that guardrails that Obama. Well, why do you think but, that but is? You know, because I think what people sometimes read or misread as bias in the media, whatever that means, is attention span or e- economically driven selection mm-hmm. not necessarily oh i'm gonna give obama or or whoever a pass on x y and z there's a bigger there is and definitely a bigger appetite for the, the salacious like scandal mo- it's great for you guys isn't the it? trump administration yeah. brings up than there is for the drone war stuff well I, mean, I, I don't think we have would, a chapter on the drone war in our book either so <laughs> we have done reporting of the daily beast though that yeah. does mention sure. we talk about trump and war yeah. crimes but um um what I would agree with the second part of what Lachlan said, which is that because Trump is so flamboyant and corrupt yeah. and 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 bigoted and not giving a shit about the rule of law in the intensely public way he 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 does it, there it's a more target rich environment than Obama. Well, also, the the offenses are a hell of a lot more cosmetically offensive. Like it's it's the the affect of a Trump versus the affect of a Barack Obama. You can mm-hmm. you can imagine like the decorum of a well-composed press secretary dealing with tough questions about, say, domestic surveillance or uh, a top ranking Obama official who seemingly at this point explicitly lies to Congress and they know how to be in lockstep, stick right. to the message, whereas the Trump administration 
every attempt to get someone else in the, in the, in in there who's going to keep yeah. us on message, who's going to actually keep the ship running in an orderly fashion, is completely undermined by the president of the United States himself. Right. who simply does, and some of these people who simply just are not up to the and, task. Like uh, Mnuchin, go out there and uh, and uh, talk in front of the press conference. See if you can come up with something. It's, it's just suddenly yeah, we did it. Yeah. When one person tries to clean it up, suddenly half a dozen more people are being convinced. Yeah, yeah, right. there, there is a qualitative difference in this respect, though, between the Trump administration and past administrations. And the example that I keep coming back to is this Hunter Biden stuff. Uh-huh. Um, like no serious, honest person is going to deny that like that is corrupt as hell. Hunter Biden getting a $50,000 a month board seat because he's the son of the vice president. Like it's it's blatantly corrupt and it's corrupt in the way that like everything ha- in D.C. has been corrupt for decades. That's a great point. Um, the Trump approach to it is this whole new type of corruption, you know, like in order to go after that type of corruption, which I was explicitly elected to combat I'm going to do I'm going to just go all out and weaponize U.S. foreign policy and foreign military aid in an effort to, like, dig up dirt on this guy who's, you know, threatening my reelection. That's like that's also corrupt. And it's corrupt in this totally over the top way. It's not like the soft corruption of the wealthy and connected getting sweet plum board gigs. It's like this in your face, extremely explicit and like intense uh, form of corruption that I think is like that's the that's the qualitative difference uh, that also does with, absolutely please. nothing to solve the actual forms of legal corruption that right, well, we're talking about. That's good point. Sure. Right, like he's not doing it to solve the problem; he's doing it to solve the Hunter Biden. Well, and that's Joe why Biden. I say that's yeah. why I say it's corrupt is because nobody, just like nobody thinks that Hunter Biden's getting that job is not corrupt. Nobody thinks that Donald Trump is seriously concerned about corruption. Well, it, it's, also, it's also amazing. The political acumen of these people is that I would have advised them, hey, don't get involved in a huge uh, a corruption scandal of your own that might get you impeached because it's Joe Biden and he's going to flame out <laughs> on his own. Just tweet eyes. Yeah, just, I mean, it's just, like, just fucking yeah, tweet about it. And everybody's like, wait, $50,000 a month? That's fucking crazy. And that would, you know, but the thing about it is I think the other thing that's changed a bit is the exhaustion that I find from people in the media who are serious, serious people who are actually fact checking these guys and doing, it, that nobody cares is that the stories that like the, the, the toilet story is great. Where because you know you can go and like the Washington Post can get like you know our uh, eighty five Pinocchios for this it's like nobody fucking cares <laughs> literally nobody cares like his is you know that Gallup poll is at forty nine percent now granted that's uh, like has a historic low for a high right I mean Obama was in the seventies at some point seventy four percent he I mean, left like, so it was sixty eight or yeah something it was, it was a high number and like you know it's forty nine is like oh my god but still forty nine percent despite the fact that the entire media apparatus is justifiably saying none of the things that you are saying are true or have been true for the past three years. And so they care about like, oh, the unemployment rate is low. It's basically full employment. And uh, yeah, great. We're cool. But when you're talking about the media apparatus, I would argue that because of the way media is consumed now, when you're talking about conservative media, social media sites. True. Just as much, and maybe in some cases, a greater number of eyeballs and ears are on what we would probably consider the disinformation not the reality. So I think when we're talking about the entire media is against Donald yes, Trump, yeah. it misses 
that that's not true anymore. No, it's absolutely, that's absolutely right. And I mean like sort of mainstream media, even when you have a conservative editorial page that unfortunately Paul Gigo has made um, a little Trumpy. I mean, the Wall Street Journal is still doing good reporting. You oh know, yeah, Some yeah. beating up, mm-hmm. beating up on on the Trump administration. So yeah, no, it, definitely uh, accepting uh, partisan media outlets, which is I think what almost everybody consumes these days. Yeah. Well, one question I wanted to ask, uh, and just to return to this theme, it, the the impact on the media as an industry is just about the quality of the reporting that we've seen, because certainly early on in the Trump administration, there were a number of pretty high profile mistakes made, like stories that would eventually have to be retracted. Um, And I think part of that might have to do with the enthusiasm for going after, one, it's the volume of stories and controversies that this particular administration seems to be surrounded by. A lot of them need to be vetted and fact-checked. People are desperate to get there first and oftentimes end up making mistakes in that respect. So that's one category of error. But there's another, which is just the sustained attention and oftentimes I think uh, insufficiently critical attention that was given to like the Russian investigation, yeah, yeah. which I think a lot of mainstream journalists like just essentially fell asleep at the wheel and were insufficiently critical of the people who were pushing this narrative. The the fact that you had like the ascension of really disreputable folks like um, James Clapper and John mm-hmm. Brennan, I think. And I think it's fair to call them disreputable in the sense that they have both actually committed perjury and both find themselves as like prominent, regularly consulted people on important national security issues. And presumably sources as well. And both of which were often suggesting that they were getting intel from people about the other shoe that was about to drop or some conviction that was definitely going to happen. And and the former head of the CIA materialized. Weirdly giving bad intel. But they (laughs) just didn't materialize. And And I have to wonder that if in a different epoch, there might have been a bit more scrutiny of the Russian investigation. If it was someone other than Donald Trump who found himself under this particular cloud of suspicion, if we might have asked better questions, because as you pointed out earlier, Swin, you know, the, the lack of attention that's been given to the various awful things I think that the Trump administration has done that in some cases have parallels in prior administrations, Mm -hmm. that happens in an environment where we're completely distracted by narratives that turn out to be completely fictitious or at least substantively they're lacking a lot of the merit that we thought was there before that's a more polite way of putting it perhaps do you want to take this first or should i go for it okay um i think something that we do to have kept our head on straight since 2017 not just with regards to trump or russia shit but just just so as bad as we think it is and how grotesque we think or believe a lot of this stuff is just it it helps clears your eyes and ears as a reporter if you don't forget obvious maxims such as federal law enforcement, whoever is president of the United States, should be looked at very skeptically if you're a fucking sure. political reporter. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Like, I forget who was who first made this joke that I've sort of clung to, I think, since 2017 or 2018. I think it was somewhere on Twitter or whatever. But uh, it was someone pretending to do an extremely math teacher type voice. And they were like, while Donald Trump is correct that the FBI is bad, looking at his work, it shows that he arrived at that answer accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> I, he's, you know, I, he's being mean to James Comey because he thinks James Comey was nasty and unfair to Mr. Trump. He's mm-hmm. not doing it because he actually thinks that the quote unquote deep state or law enforcement excesses or prosecutorial overreach are things that actually needed to be fixed in this country. He does not give a shit. Mm-hmm. 
Unless you know, it has to do with I, I was really proud of how the Daily Beast handled the Russia situation in particular because I think we didn't yeah. really get ahead of our skis. Um, and I think the one of the major underlying problems in media that it that it illustrated was that was to show that nobody no or very few news consumers are differentiating between your news and your opinion content. Mm-hmm, sure. So when you have your reporters who are actually doing a good job and going out there and checking their facts and not getting ahead of their skis, and then you have your whatever cable news pundits who are going out there like, well, you know, the the Deutsche Bank computer code looks awfully similar to the Trump organization. You know, <laughs> I'd like just going off on like these crazy theories. Um, you know, these opinion uh, the opinion section of the news business needs to sort of understand both sides need to understand it. But I wish the opinion folks really understood how much how damaging that is to people who are actually doing the report. I would say that, that, that one of the things to, uh, that for all the screw ups and all of the overreach on the Russia story and good God, was there a lot of it? Sure. I still think we're in a much better time and I'm happy that we exist in the way that we do, because if you think back to Watergate, I mean, you had a supine press from Mm -hmm. 1968 to 1973, essentially, because Richard Nixon is doing a lot of bad things, a lot of bad things, right? There are people reporting on it, particularly focused on Vietnam. And then, of course, you get stuff, the bombing of Cambodia, et cetera. But remember that when the break-in happens that day, it is the DNC, right? It is in the office building of the Watergate. It is the DNC. And they give it to two court reporters, basically. (laughs) I mean, those are junior guys. That's like, they. it just fell in their lap. It wasn't like, holy shit, we got him now. Let's give it to the big boys. They gave it to the little guys. And because there wasn't, you know, everybody swarming all the time, you also don't have the conspiracy theories that last as long as they do in the Watergate sense. And remember, there's a book by a guy named Len Kolodny called Silent Coup, which uh, John Dean uh, sued Len Kolodny and then sued G. Gordon Liddy about it. Like it was actually a thing to get um, Maureen Dean was running a prostitution ring out of the water. Checks out. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it, but but like there's a huge book. Of, people still believe this stuff. Mm-hmm. And half of that book actually is about how uh, Bob Woodward was like covering up certain sources because he was in the Navy. It's actually a really interesting part of the book. It's one element of it. But now we, we are doing a lot of these conspiracy theories in real time. And a lot of them have, are exhausting themselves and are not staying. They're not. I mean, Rachel Maddow, you're making money and then you're going to lose some money or not going to make as much money. I mean, this stuff does sell, but not forever. Rachel Maddow can't keep doing the Russia stuff. And she was up at what? How many? Almost three million, two and a half million a night. And then it just went into the toilet afterwards. It was like, well, OK, that's that. So it's, I'm happy that the media is, is as aggressive as it is now. And sometimes, yes, they screw up mm-hmm. pretty bad. And to your earlier point about how shocking it is, whether in this current environment or decades in the administration's past, ignore my pause here. Maybe uh, this outside. <laughs> we, we do rip on these people uh, that I'm about to talk about in, in the book, where the heavyweights of mainstream American political media, the august forces of Pulitzer winning this and that, uh-huh. how much that these fuckers can miss in the most humiliating ways possible. Obviously, the biggest example of my lifetime is probably something like WMD and run up to the Iraq war and Bush era, this and that. Um, I remember reading about this Reagan administration official who I think was 
complaining that if it weren't for that goddamn newspaper in Beirut, we would have gotten away with the Iran-Contra scandal. And it was a newspaper in Beirut. Yeah, it was. It was not somebody in D.C. Right. How is it possible that so many hardwired, well-paid, well-sourced people in Washington, D.C. fucking missed this? The right. story. That, of, it's yeah. funny because I was actually just going to mention this small kind of, um, you know, I, I don't know who is aligned with this Al Shur. I can't remember who's the next. But this newspaper, which possibly got this information from Moscow, which they're quite good at doing back in the day. Everyone thinks this is of course a new thing and i always recommend <laughs> the matrokin archive book the christopher andrews the two volumes mm. is they were just planting stories all over the world and it was usually indian newspapers where they always start in india and if sympathetic correct you run it the sympathetic stuff in in uh in uh middle east and like yeah it was going on under everyone's nose a lot when you look at the walsh like when that, that investigation there are a lot of players in this mm. and it was a newspaper in beirut that somehow cycled back to the U.S. and nobody caught it. And, and it's I mean, the Scooby Doo scene, like the SWAT teams exist. <laughs> yeah. like a fucking dog. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what is the difference here? Is it is it a more is it more intense scrutiny of the Trump administration? Is it the 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 number of outlets that we actually have that we can lean on at this point and pull from? If but I'll just say the fact this: that anyone could break a story. The, these guys know better. But to say one thing: if it is the case that it's it's more scrutiny. The only thing we should complain about is if it flags, if there's a Sanders administration or something, more scrutiny is better. It's a thousand times I better. I, I, and if it's Donald Trump that's motivating that, okay, let's just see if we can keep it up. Do you guys Bernie think Bernie Sanders is president of the United States? I don't think there'll be any shortage of yeah, 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 corporate yeah. media going yeah, yeah, after him. Yeah. I find that hard to believe. I, I do if, too. What yeah. if it's someone else? What if it's Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar? Do, do you think we have the kind of media scrutiny that we've gotten of Donald Trump? Is this the new normal? I pray to God that it is. No, I, 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 I don't. I mean, I think Trump's style and to a degree Sanders' style or like a Tulsi Gabbard or someone like yeah. that is going to inevitably attract more attention from the press because, I mean, someone like a Klobuchar or a Buttigieg is more of like an in-group personality um, for better or wor for worse. Um, <laughs> but I don't think there's any denying that Trump is different in both style and substance from and, and his predecessors. Too. Right. Um, so, I mean, there there just objectively is more to cover because of the internal dysfunction, because of the, you know, the 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 moral hazard and the corruption that has followed him, um, the extensive like business dealings, um, the the, you know, incredibly factional and leaky staff. Like there are there are objective, tangible things that just make for more and more compelling material to write about with this White House than the past White House. But and, and Lachlan, as somebody who's been in that universe and covered conservatives and no conservatives and worked sure. at the Free Beacon, I mean, when this administration started staffing up very slowly, I was like, "Who the fuck are these people?" <laughs> I mean, it's like literally, like no, I, like AEI is like, "Hey guys," and Heritage Foundation is like, "Okay, let's become more Trumpy." Yeah, and they're, they start switching. But as far as like this. You guys talk about this, this D-list kind of D-team. Like, I, I mean, you are going to have uh, far more problems when you're hiring fucking Amarosa, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's they, insane. That, yeah, that didn't backfire at all. No, no, <laughs> no. And weirdly, she's so bad at this, even of like being a turncoat that no one bought her book. It's like literally you, you can't even write a book that people buy. That's amazing. It's not credible.
Yeah, like, I, well, you know, yeah, that's why. I knew <laughs> multiple people in the Trump skeptical Republican establishment space who sort of came to terms with it in January and February 2017. They were like, you know what? We've been toiling away under Obama for eight years and like it sucked and I'm going to get in there and I'm going to do, you know, I'll go work for, you know, Rex Tillerson or Jim, Jim Mattis or something like that. And I won't deal with Trump and I'll try to do some good and, and move the country in the right direction. And then it turns out they had like tweeted twice about Trump you know, nine months earlier in an unflattering way. And, you know, they're, they're like in the latter stages of their vetting. And that just like, that, does that actually matter? Cause like, yes, like yeah, Mnuchin, well, yeah. like as a guy who is like, you know, uh, just attacking him during, I mean, a lot of these people attack him during the campaign. For sure. So, uh, some people have enough pool to get protected, but right. yes, yeah. it, right. it is a Ken Cuccinelli is another seven. hilarious. Yeah, he like spearheaded the convention. Conve- I was Trump standing next to him during yeah. the convention when he was, I mean, screaming. if you, if you, you know, sufficiently show your fealty, not just in, in, uh, you know, in practice and, and you, you really sort of uh, put your money where your mouth is, then I think you can earn your way back into the president's yeah. good graces. Unless but at the time, right at the outset, it was like widespread paranoia that like Donald Trump had just tipped the apple cart over and the swamp was like, you know, was just had no idea what to do. And that there were they were surrounded by enemies. They were surrounded by like the permanent Washington bureaucracy, a deep state, whatever you want to call it. And you needed to make sure that there were people who weren't just loyal to Trump, but like agreed with his disruptive vision for the American government. So, I mean, this is being charitable and giving giving them the benefit of the doubt. But it was like, you know, we just we just booted these people out of office. They fucking hate us. We can't just bring them right back in. Um, And unfortunately for the president, that left him like starved for staff. And like a lot of the Republican talent in the country was now off limits. Um, and the people who would be staffing any other White House were not eligible for positions. So. Yeah, we uh, a little um, slightly less generous uh, shade on that, which we actually get into in the book, is there was this one scene where um, it was October 2016. It was around the time of my um, birthday. And Lachlan and I were actually hanging out um, at, a, at a bar or restaurant just getting um, um, drunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, right. Exactly. It, yeah. And there was someone there who I'm, I'm not going to name who um, was a fairly well-known Republican individual in official corridors of Washington, D.C. And we were talking to this person who and I remember talking about how I thought Donald Trump had way too many fascistic leanings or policy ceilings and and how he's this brutal racist and it would be insane for this like morally and mentally attealated accused uh, uh sexual assaulter and harasser uh, he has he is good he could actually become leader of the free world it's gotta be him or hillary clinton come early uh 2017 and this person not nodded along to all of it they, they weren't just being polite they agreed they reflected it back to to us in what they said this was their opinion they might have even used the word fascist or fascistic or pseudo fascist uh-huh. as well like it could not have been more explicit this person has since become again I, i'm sorry to your listeners I, I can't say who has become a very senior person and uh in the trump administration uh-huh. and at some point i and i talked about this um, uh, uh, with semi-regularity to people both I'm friendly with and people who I'm definitely not friendly with. If you said that in late 2016 to me as a person who thinks fascism is bad or racism and, and racist American um, 
uh, uh, policy, foreign, domestic, is not good. There are things that if you say you shouldn't be allowed to take back, especially if you state this as your firmly held belief, and then to go serve at the feet of this man. But isn't that- He's an incredible- I don't even know if I'd call it a 180. I'm just not sure if there's... It, it seems so typical. Because but you've seen a some lot of level, that in D.C., right? But, yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and, but on yeah, some level, don't you want that, though? No. Don't you want people <laughs> not to compromise their beliefs, but to take their beliefs with them into the White House, into the Justice Department, if, in fact, judiciary independence has been completely undermined? Um, or is it judicial independence? Judicial independence. The independence of the judiciary. There you go. Yeah, you I can, like that. That's probably well, better. It, even if you think that's been undermined, that should be all the more reason why you want people to take their principles and go work for this administration so that they can help to keep him in check. It, it, uh, isn't, that, isn't that essentially the mission that people like John Kelly were essentially tasking themselves when they wanted yes, to go work and they for this guy? Failed. failed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, did, did they no, fail, but, though? No, did you, they fail I, in, the sense, that, in right. the sense that they sort of stayed forever? Or were they able to check some of his worst impulses? I, I, John Kelly, you know, you could point to specific instances where he may have prevented like an Omarosa from – you know, triggering the president into doing something terrible. But for the most part, I mean, I I think at the time in late 2016, maybe even if you despise Trump, you would agree with that. You'd be like, all right, well, you know, even if you hate the guy, like I would like some responsible people to be put in there around him. It's become very apparent, at least to me in the three years since that the opposite has happened, that he's been able to like bend an entire political party essentially to his will. This, I mean, the Republican Party is the Trump is the Trump Party now. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you think that's good or bad, uh, and service in Donald Trump's administration, as he, uh, you know, makes clear very often, is contingent upon you supporting the you know supporting the way he wants to run things. And if you don't support that, then get the hell out. Um, and I just don't see I don't see any pushback from members of Congress, let alone members of his own administration. Um, so I just don't see any evidence that anyone has tried and been successful at doing that. And do you guys, I mean, I'm sure you've probably asked and are trying to get information out of these people, but when can we expect to hear from the HR McMasters and the John Kellys? And is it, or is it, there's a codified into the military code of conduct? Yeah, I mean, when's that the check? The question is, well, that's the thing is that everyone's pissing on, uh, on John Bolton, but he's, this is a time honored tradition in American politics of like, you know, there's a lot of people, uh, I think Paul O'Neill, I remember was that like a year into the Bush administration, two years. It's a common thing and nobody cared about it when he did it because they were ratting out somebody that, you know, they wanted to rat out. So like professional Washington is in the Trump era is weird because you always have your permanent political class that, you know, before they're in office and after they're in in office, they just sort of stick around to like influence something, you know, whether they're on K Street or they're in media or PR or whatever. They make a business out of those political connections that they built. It happens on both sides of the aisle. Always gross. Always gross. And Trump, I mean, he hasn't stopped doing that. Hasn't not that's that's still a thing. But there's this weird sort of subclass of folks who know specifically how to influence Donald Trump, right? Um, and have you know are close to or have come through his administration. So the people that have left under you know a sort of angry circumstances, and that's a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, do you think that just generally they're not talking, not even writing a book, but just not talking? Because they don't want to give up their their uh, influence. In, well, in, no, I think because you I, say it's the party of Trump. Someone now. like John Bolton. So I there. So there's this weird subclass that that is doing very well because they can influence Trump. But once Trump's gone, their value proposition is pretty much gone. Corey Lewandowski. Yeah, people yeah, like right. Corey Lewandowski is who I'm thinking. He's going to be running a bowling alley in Nashville. <laughs> yeah. He's, he is a one trick pony. 
But then there are folks yeah. like John Bolton, who I think once Trump is out of office, I could be wrong about this because it may have fully transformed into the sort of populist vision that, that Trump's had for it. But he, I think, is hoping that he still will have a future in Republican politics after Trump leaves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, yes, he's he's making a little bit of noise and he's saying some things that are not helpful to the president. But he's also just like teasing people. And he really hasn't like given up the goods in ways that Trump's critics wanted him to. Mm-hmm. He's not testifying. Um, yeah. Chapter 14, though. Yes. And, and a 14, lot of good really... that did anyone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, the guy exactly. got acquitted a week later. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't think he there's certainly no love lost between him and the president right now. And he's not going to make a business out of influencing the Trump administration. But I think he will be around after Trump. Leaves it, it strikes me that, that it, Donald Trump gets away with so much because even the fact that he's a complete um, moron in so many ways, one would presume that he would react in, uh, to, to people in different ways if everyone who left started talking and I suspect that he doesn't really modify his behavior very much because everyone who leaves, no one does talk in any substantial. I mean, you have like the anonymous sources or, you know, close to the administration, which I always just presume. I mean, what what are they going to say that we don't already know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, if you come out, and I mean, this, I'm sure there's the a guy lot. Who just wrote a book about the administration. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Get easy. You all know this stuff. There's a thing about badgers in there, though. <laughs> there's, there's a badger story that got widely reported, by the way. You got some, you got a little okay. bit of. I think that's like the biggest do, thing that's. Do we, yeah, have, yeah. do we have time to. Yes, explain the badger okay, story. Okay, so uh, okay, no. so okay, then they don't so, have to buy the book. <laughs> or, or not. This is up to you. So one of the details in there that I Okay, so excerpts for over the past two or three weeks from our book have run mm-hmm. at uh, at multiple uh, media outlets. Yeah, and as, something as, that as wasn't excerpted, mm-hmm. right? Something that was not excerpted at all from the book, and which I did not expect anyone to give a shit about, but was near and dear to my heart just because I thought it was really fucking funny, and I was like, oh, I'm proud of this stupid little piece of reporting. That's not really getting its day in the sun. So uh, was it like a week, a few days ago, whatever. I just randomly tweeted while bored in the office. Okay, like nobody's going to excerpt this. And but I mean, it's near and dear to my heart. It's a little piece of the book. So here here it goes. I'm going to flick it out on Twitter and just, you know, check it out if you want. And it was just very simple. Um, Early on in the early days of the Trump White House, uh, the president would repeatedly um, derail actual White House or policy discussions he was having with his then White House chief of staff, Reince Priebus, to annoy him and pelt him with questions about badgers in Wisconsin. <laughs> like, how do they work? Are they mean to <laughs> yeah. people? It's like an are insane clown like, posse song. How do these badgers work? <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Like, are, are, are they mean or nice people? What yeah. do they do with their claws? Can they hurt people with it? By what the way, are, all good eat? questions. All great questions. <laughs> all great questions. And Ryan Priebus would just kind of look at the pre- being like, okay, what, what am I doing but what what is the what is the and president doing is he is he just fucking with him or is no, no 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 he he has a mind of childlike wonder when it comes to things he's fascinated with and that can range from badgers in wisconsin to trash in space like he's fascinated by the idea of trash but actually it's in space space, space trash is actually a big deal space yeah. is it's a really fasc- big it is, it is he doesn't care about yeah. trash so much on earth <laughs> well, <laughs> right. very got, much got a place for that yeah, space yeah. trash space though trash. So, like yeah. it runs into satellites and it fucks things up it's I a really know. big deal how are we going to deal with this problem yeah. So I just tweeted out the Badgers thing being like, this is funny because it makes it's Trump being a fucking idiot. Yeah. And it's just it's frivolous. It's dumb. But whatever. Here. You Did you have multiple sources on this? Yes. Really? Yes. He, yeah. With uh, who, who heard it 
for first end. Yeah. Um, obviously, I got to give Swin all the credit here. This was like thorough. This was my passion project. I heard it once and that I needed to confirm the Badgers thing for um, the book. And I think I even told Lachlan pretty late into the drafting process. This was a late issue. It's like, Lachlan, I heard this new thing and I got to get it. I think you can still find a text message. I'm like, Lachlan, don't close it. I got to get the Badgers in. So um, I tweet it. And then suddenly the the detail goes semi-viral, at least. And other publications start excerpting it and writing about it. It gets mentioned on late night comedy TV. And it starts making the rounds. I just look at Lachlan. I'm like, I'm so fucking stupid. I just gave up all of that web traffic to like business insiders. Yeah, yeah. There you go, Anthony Fisher. Um, Not here today, but he's still in your traffic. But, I, you know, it's funny that it must be a a great feeling when you work really hard and you write a book and you've worked hard for three years and then everyone's talking about the Badger thing. <laughs> it's it's hey, like, like, a, like we, maybe it's gratifying. I don't know. No, no. It's a, well, I, mean, I mean, it's a nice it's little microcosm of like, look, we're not breaking yeah. the fucking Pentagon papers here. Exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 Try not to take ourselves too seriously at all in this book or in our day-to-day work at the Daily Beast. In fact, we explicitly say in the book, since we're talking about like sort of navel-gazy self-reflective stuff, that too much of the political press, at least in our sphere of things, takes themselves way too seriously. I think that's absolutely true. Vanguards of the First Amendment. We're yeah. sticking it to the big bad Trump every day. Just, just, just do your fucking job and don't be a drama queen about it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of this stuff. And is- have fun with, like, I fucking love writing about this shit. It's like, I mean, it can be, get exhausting, but like, yeah. I don't know. There's nothing else I'd rather be doing. Like, you, you, like journalists are like some lucky ass people that they get to write. For well, I, I will so. say that, that, that <laughs> one of the virtues of the book is that it, you mention, um, and in a disparaging way, thankfully, the Bob Woodward's uh, book, The Fear, yeah. which is <laughs> like, I mean, no one will remember, just like his Bush books, nobody will remember. And also remember that he's kind of a fraud um, for two reasons. We had, we've had Ben Dreyfus on the show. I, I don't know if you ever worked with him at, at uh, Yeah, of course, friends. of course. Ben's a great guy. A, and great. Uh, he, he, nobody hates Bob Woodward more than Ben because <laughs> he's the wrote, social media director of Mother Jones Max. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it, well because because he wrote um, his first non-political book he wrote about John Belushi and his mother was dating John Belushi at the time that he died and he's like he lied about her a million times and and then of course the book Veil about William Casey, the former head of the CIA, the family was like, he claimed to be there while he was dying. And he's like, no one saw William Casey. It's completely made up. And also because he once shushed me in a green room and he was a complete dick to me. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that that level of seriousness is like, you know, do do we want... I, Michael Wolff's books are, I think, far, far less serious than your book in a way. Because Michael Wolff, I've seen up close for people who have talked to him. Absolute um, snake. Absolute fucking snake. And he he lied to somebody I know very well and told uh, him something was off the record and reported the entire thing in his book. Mm. And I said, well, you know, I mean, okay, I trust you. And he's like, no, no, you don't have to trust me. And then he provided me with the recording of uh, their meeting in which uh, Michael Wolf says, he's like, this is totally off the record because I just like, you know, he's been been bothering him. And he's like, and, and he hooked him in on a different premise, which if I told you, you would understand. You'd be like, oh, okay, I know why he talked to him now. And then all this stuff verbatim gets into the book. Wow. And it's crazy, crazy. And this guy I know very well who knows Trump extremely well. And um, has told me many, many, many Trump stories, which, of course, make me believe the Badger story <laughs> because there are various forms of the Badger story over over the years. But it, I couldn't I mean, the, the scumminess that that guy got away with and made a ton of money. Oh, on, God. A ton of money. Yeah. On. The um, 
Well, the, the the bone that I and I think we have to pick with Woodward in terms of his Trump era reporting is uh, the thing we were picking on him in, like, I think the introductory chapter for our book, for his book, Fear, his, his Trump presidency book, uh, the first one, he's currently working on another one with the cooperation of the White House and the president of the United States, um, is it's that bizarre. it was almost um, a lot of it felt like it was ghost written by Rob Porter. Mm. And something I reported on at the time when the book was making the media rounds was the Rob Porter um, uh, spousal abuse allegations are reduced to literally a paragraph, maybe a paragraph and a half. Yeah. And it sort of brushed off as, oh, these allegations come out and he kind of thought he'd be a big hassle for Trump at the administration. So he left. It was the end of story. I, I'm not in Bob Woodward's head. I do not know who his top sources were on the book. But if you, if hypothetically Rob Porter is going to be one of your top sources for the book, giving you all this great information and uh, dishy, juicy details, at least try a little bit harder to make it seem like you weren't covering for a man. Mm. And not just anybody, someone who was credibly accused of uh, of abusing physically and emotionally multiple women. If you have to leave the Trump White House for something, it's probably true. Right. So, like, I make I mean, fun of the book because I'm like, it's ostensibly written by Bob Woodward. But, I mean, yeah. kind of seemed like it was written by yeah. Rob Porter. I mean, yeah. take whatever shots you want to at our book. We have thick skins. We can take it. I don't think we did anything like that. But, but Bob Woodward, I think, in the world of journalism and people who pay attention to him, is right said Fred. He is CNC Music Factory. He had one hit <laughs> and then oh. has been trying to... to like, a line, a line I wrote, it's a really big somebody hit. deleted from one of our original drafts of the book was, <laughs> uh, Bob Woodward is the Francis Ford Coppola of American political media. He hasn't made anything truly great since the 1970s. Yeah, which is true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. Lachlan took it out because he loves eyes wide shut. He's like, <laughs> wait, that's, came in, that's Stanley like, Kubrick. Oh, Keith Kubrick. Same thing. Yeah, same thing. Same guy. I was thinking maybe his daughter. Can I make fun of his daughter? What has he made? Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. What has he made? He made a movie with Tim Roth in like 2007. What was the? Uh, oh well, he, yeah, he did Godfather Three. That was in the nineties. I finally watched that. By the way. Godfather it is 3? exactly as awful as everyone said it was. I because I wanted to be a revisionist and be like, this is pretty good, and like just piss people off. Like Sofia Coppola is really, really hot fire in this movie. It was so bad. It was so bad. And then there was like a big massacre on some steps at the end, and I was like, what the fuck just happened? Won't even Don't that big. spoil it. I mean, it came out 25 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> What's the spoiler uh, statute of limitations? I don't know. All right. Well, um, well, guys, Darth Vader <laughs> is. Is you're not gonna believe whose daddy is. <laughs> um, I'm gonna spoil the passion of the what? Christ for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, I was so, gonna make a joke that I'll make off air. But continue. <laughs> We've been going for a little while, so we should probably start to wrap this up. I, I wonder if you guys have parting thoughts with respect to your book. Maybe areas that we touched upon but didn't get into sufficiently. Things that you think are terribly important. I mean, we, we say this more or less explicitly in the book, but like we're, we try, we try not to insult your intelligence by like pretending that we're coming at this as either a, like, you know, the, the, this is going to be the seminal work on the Trump white house or B that, you know, we, we don't, you know, that we're, we're playing it right down the middle and we don't have opinions about this stuff. So I don't know, you know, we're trying to differentiate ourselves from everything else that's coming out right now. And uh, you know, the way we went about that is just sort of 
doing this in our own voice. So what you're hearing now is more or less what the book sounds like. We tried to take a more, to use a term of the era, a more populist approach. (laughs) (laughs) And um, to my, my opinion is that most of the people who are reading this are either just as clever or probably smarter than I am. That's, a, that's such a great pitch. Gosh, you guys yeah. really know how to sell it. I'm going to, I want to buy uh, the book. But, 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 this but is I'm a more entertaining writer. Yeah, you're not gonna, What's that You might have written yourself. Yeah. Uh, and I just want to end on something that we talked about before we started recording. Um, and Swin was wondering if this was in fact true. I was saying that Gore Vidal, the novelist uh, who, as Swin rightly pointed out, brain was a bit scrambled by the end of his life, did indeed praise Timothy McVeigh um, as a Kipling hero. And uh, by the way, uh, it's my favorite bit. And I'd read all these quotes before, but one I had not read was that uh, McVeigh had asked Vidal to come uh, hang with him for the execution. Um, And this is what uh, he said. uh, Vidal said that uh, he requested his last meal of mint ice cream with chocolate sauce and spent his last hours watching the Coen brother film Fargo. And this is the Vidal quote. It's a great film, but bloody. A body is shredded and such like and not quite what he wanted to see. Poor fellow. Huh. Timothy McVeigh, who blew up the Murrah Federal Building and killed lots of children, children. A in daycare. a daycare center, is that, that Gore Vidal says that poor fella, he didn't want to see. It was too bloody for him. The last thing. So if you want to, if you want to look that up, there's a lot of uh, Gore Vidal uh, praise to Timothy McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh got to watch his a last movie. I, I, I was unaware that, that that was a thing. <laughs> along with a last movie, incidentally, yeah. What that would your would last been- movie be, Swin? Well, you mean a movie I'd never seen before? Because no, just what your last I mean, movie? No, it's the last movie last you get to see in life. No, you want to do one you've be, seen before be... because if it's none you haven't seen, it sucks. Well, You're like, oh my god! But <laughs> I... all saying, this poor guy, if he knew what he was in for, well, we don't know. We don't know. If obviously, want to see the seen blood. It we don't know. Well, that's one. Okay. But this is a question for you. What last do movie. you want to see before you're executed? Um, um, for treason. Is this a new segment we're going to do before you get executed for treason? What's the movie you're going to see? And the pussycat. Really? Yeah. It, Underrated. This is live, the remake, the, the, the remake, live action. The live action yes, not the, like a, huh. a series of the cartoons. Huh. I think it has Shannon Sossman in it. And have you seen this film that. already? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. No. <Yeah. laughs> I, I've always wanted to watch it ever since I was but a I, kid. But I love that the fact is, that you so haven't I've seen never... it, and you said it's underrated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it must be because that's, like be. a, that's like a zero on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. So yeah. I want to see it. And I already know that Lachlan wants to see Coyote Ugly. Yeah. No. No. My choice would be The Irishman because it never. Fucking yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. Draw yeah. it out. Yeah. The sorrow and the pity. <laughs> Nine hour documentary on Nazis. Like, oh, uh, cool. Yeah. The Ken yeah. Burns Civil War documentary. You know? <laughs> is, that, is that one thing? thing? <laughs> yeah. The whole thing. <laughs> Plus, he also the, did the New York um, set as well. No, he did not. That's not wrong. Me. Fake news. That Who is did Rick Burns, his brother. Is that right? Yes. He's oh, the, shut up. He is the Aussie Canseco of that family. <laughs> yeah. He's the lesser Burns. Yes. Yes. And as I said, <laughs> I've said many times in podcasts before, I shot something with Ken Burns last year and he was just a fucking great guy. Yeah. I was just like, this guy's going to be kind of a jerk. Yeah. And he was awesome nice. and super fun. And I did, I, I, and I, I think I told some stories about that before, so I won't repeat them, but he was just a good dude. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He <laughs> did uh, something with uh, Taylor Swift, I think, during the Obama era and back during my job. Wow. Entertainment what do you mean? Some mother. Jo- a video. Video. She's like <laughs> reading the comments. Wait, wait, what kind of video? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, it was, uh, yeah, so it was great. Ken Burns just about Taylor Swift. 
That's it. it cutting back between like Shelby Foot and Taylor Swift. There's some people out there that will get the Shelby Foot reference. I'm sorry. He's the old man in the Civil War uh, documentary. He's the historian who's like, oh, down in Crackleberry Creek. Uh, <laughs> big, uh, and, and, and he does that, the, the deep. It's, he's kind of like Jesse Jackson in a way, because when he does that, uh, down in Vicksburg, he uh, does that kind of thing. Um, it's a great series, by the way. Yeah. Anyway. Gentlemen. Thank you so much for having Thanks for coming. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. And uh, we expect a big uh, uptick in sales because uh, we had a lot of uh, uh, readers, right? And they all got that money. Buy the fucking book. Buy the book. Bam. But make sure that you're still doing the Patreon thing. And if it it influences your book buying, don't buy the book. (laughs) God damn it. No. Stay with (laughs) it. No, no, no. The Patreon has enough. (laughs) Buy subscribers. Buy the book. Bye-bye. We know of new methods of attack. Broken heart.